Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. And this is, you know, moving from the idea of digital inclusion to participation, we need to lower the barriers for more Southeast Asians to become active users of digital products and services. Think in the past, we've all we've, we've looked more at inclusion and access, but actually we've made so much inroads over the past years. Now we're again talking about participation because what we're seeing is that 30% of the highest spending customers who we call high value users, well, they make up over 70% of the digital economy's transaction value. So 30% are leading to 70% of the digital economy. We want to make sure that we don't leave users behind and we continue to drive growth and drive their participation. And so we need to make sure that we are not ignoring this very important group that present a 1.9x growth opportunity of that, of high value users. And for this reason, it's really important for us to, to talk about digital participation. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and we live in a different era where cheap money is no longer available, moderate inflation, and investors' desire for profitability. What does it mean for businesses in Southeast Asia? With me today, and this seems like an annual tradition now, we have Sapna Chatha, Vice President, Google Southeast Asia, and Florin Hope, partner from Bain & Company, to share with us the latest Economy Southeast Asia report 2023 compiled by Google, Bain & Co, and Temasek, which is a very well-known sovereign wealth fund in Singapore. So welcome, uh, Sapna and Florin, to the show today. Great to be here. Mm. So, so maybe we should first have some introduction because last year I have Florian and uh, Sapna's predecessor, Stephanie, who has actually been here about three times on the show uh, to talk about the Economy Southeast Asia Report 2022. So maybe can you, uh, Sapna, can you give an introduction of yourself and your role and coverage for Google? Sure. Thanks so much, Bernard. So I've assumed the role of Vice President of Southeast Asia and South Asia Frontier. It's been close to a year now, and I'm responsible for delivering business outcomes and growth for Google. You know, it's incredibly exciting to lead a region like Southeast Asia. It's such great diversity, innovation, and growth potential. In particular, I love being a part of the region's growth story. As you know, that's why we've been doing this report. Southeast Asia is a tech-forward region that's shown so much resilience in weathering obstacles of the pandemic and macroeconomic climates. And we've shown this year that it continues to be just as adaptable. And so when I think about the business that I work in and the potential that it has, we're always asking the question in the work that we do, how do we enable people and businesses to unlock new opportunities and feel confident yet stay 
safe online. That's whether it's through our helpful products, it could be through programs that we create to help skill people throughout the region. And so we're basically working to help businesses succeed with technology, partnering and supporting our clients, anybody who's a multinational to a startup to a small and medium business, helping them problem solve. But what really gets me excited is working with a team of diverse and talented individuals at Google. Diverse perspectives are critical, and my team is made up of more than 20 nationalities, all bringing valuable ideas and insights from across the region. And we look forward to sharing more today. Mm, I definitely think so, because I have a lot of ex-colleagues who are now working in Google. So the Economy Southeast Asia Report 2023 has been around since 2016, if I'm not wrong. And this is probably the ninth year. And it has been a pretty interesting to see the evolution. And last year was probably one of the most interesting turning points. To go straight to the report, we have major macroeconomic headwinds with high interest rates, moderately inflationary environment, and business cutting costs, as well as layoffs. What are the key takeaways from the report this year? Yeah, so Southeast Asia has been weathering macroeconomic headwinds that you mentioned relatively better than other regions. It's, of course, not immune to the shifts that we see in the global economic climate, but we see that Southeast Asia continues to be more resilient than elsewhere. You said yourself, you know, moderate inflation, for example. We've seen GDP still keeping track with the fastest growing economies in the world. But the big thing that I want to call out is there's a change and a shift to end this pursuit of financial sustainability and boosting profitability. And we're seeing that businesses have been successful in increasing monetization. They're building adjacent revenue streams as well. And what this is doing is it's propelling Southeast Asia's digital economy to reach a key milestone of $100 billion in revenue across all digital economy sectors. And interestingly, this is growing 1.7x as fast as GMV. So in the years past, you've heard us only speak about GMV. A distinction is that this year we're looking at both revenue and GMV. And we're seeing revenue is 1.7x as fast. And that shows that these aren't as odds with each other. And that's really important as all digital economy sectors are showing positive growth trajectories too. You have travel and transport on track to exceed pre-pandemic levels next year by 2024. Um, you know, we have some of the fastest paths to recovery expected with travel. And I know Florian's going to talk more about this probably, but we also see that digital payments now make up more than 50% of the region's overall transaction value. This is really important because we're seeing that cash is no longer king. Right. The fact that digital payments now are more than 50% of the region's transaction value is really important. And I think it's 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 a real milestone that we should we see this kind of leapfrogging of behaviors, which is really wonderful to to see. And the last thing I'll say uh, that is a message and a really important message from the report is we're pointing to the importance of increasing digital participation. And this is you know moving from the idea of digital inclusion to participation, we need to lower the barriers for more Southeast Asians to become active users of digital products and services. I think in the past, we've all we've, we've looked more at inclusion and access, but actually we've made so much inroads over the past years. Now we're again 
talking about participation, because what we're seeing is that 30% of the highest spending customers who we call high value users, well, they make up over 70% of the digital economy's transaction value. So 30% are leading to 70% of the digital economy. We want to make sure that we don't leave users behind and we continue to drive growth and drive their participation. And so we need to make sure that we are not ignoring this very important group that present a 1.9x growth opportunity of that, of high value users. And for this reason, it's really important for us to, to talk about digital participation. Thank you, Sunil, for the very good summary of what's going on in the region. It looks more optimistic than I would have thought. Maybe Florian, you can help me with this. How do you characterize the region's performance against a global macroeconomic headwind? Specifically, maybe which verticals are growing? I think Sabna uh, talked about the usage of digital payments and which verticals are declining. I'm sure travel is back. Everybody's revenge traveling now, definitely this year. That's a great question, Granat. And I have to say, we were very surprised by just seeing that healthy growth almost across all sectors and verticals that we profile. So as, as I was mentioning, first year we're hitting 100 billion in revenue, and revenue has been a big focus for us in terms of our profiling as well. But we did look at GMB as well. We looked at the GMB growth, and overall, the digital economy in Southeast Asia still hit double-digit uh, GMB growth into 2023 at, at 11%. But what's under that is, is even sectors like e-commerce, which have recently taken a bit of a hit, still grew GMB at 6% and even more impressively grew revenue by 22%. So we definitely see a strong focus on, on monetization just across every vertical. And that's true for, for sectors like uh, transport and travel, as you were mentioning, revenge travel is here to stay. We still haven't hit pre-pandemic highs in both transport and travel, so it does take a lot of time to build back the capacity. And travel in particular, that's held back by domestic travel corridors, in particular Indonesia and the Philippines are not back at domestic airline travel as they have been pre-pandemic. Hotels are somewhat back on, on occupancy, but but still catching up to, to pre-pandemic heights. And then digital financial services just continues to perform very strong. The one sector was, which is slightly down on GMB is the food delivery side. But even there, we see very solid revenue trajectory and really kind of the, the down push really probably more from a refocus on monetization and showing profitable growth. And we expect it actually to continue to grow quite healthily as, as things progress going forward. Mm. That's pretty interesting in terms of how you separated the different verticals and which ones are growing and which ones are still trying to get back to pre-pandemic levels. I have this question to both of you, whoever, whichever of you can start off first. What is the one interesting data point that you found most exciting about the Economy Southeast Asia report for 2023 that maybe very few people would pick up on? I can I can start. I've already said it. That's probably because I already think I do think it's the most interesting. I mean, actually, I, I spent a decade of my career in financial services. So I think it's a really significant milestone for the sector now that digital payments make up more than half of total transaction value, right? This is it's it's incredible. I think there would be many people who would not have expected us to reach this far because they're, they're sometimes ingrained behaviors, but you can see that the pandemic really played a role in really getting people to be more comfortable. But outside of you know pure play fintechs, which have been successful also in lending to the underbanks segments, we also see now established financial services institutions really quick to shift their existing large customer bases to digitalize services as well. And so you see, this is not um, just happening in certain pockets 
and spaces anymore, but it's across the board. And I think we're going to continue to see acceleration here. Hmm. Flora, what about you? Anything interesting? Yeah, obviously there's a number of top line messages like the 100 billion revenue, which I think everyone will pick up on when, when they open the report and sectorally interesting ones like fundraising. I have to say the one that I found particularly eye-opening is the composition and mix of the revenue. So if you look at actually the, the evolving mix of where the revenue of the digital economy comes from, gives you a different view to where the, where the GMV was and also gives you a kind of sense for where different companies will place their attention going forward. I think revenue obviously is a key because of the profits. Now, underlying these revenue numbers are still very different profit models and profitability models, which we'll spend more time on in the coming years as these different pockets of the digital economy become profitable. But that evolving mix of where the money is actually being made, that's going to be really important if you think around the path for the digital economy to 2013. Hmm. I have the opportunity to actually read the entire report before this interview. So one of the curious things I, I was want to look at is specifically for the startup ecosystem, where I understand that the private funding has actually declined to its lowest level in six years. Does this actually align with, say, global shifts in venture capital funding as well? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's been a it's been a tough year for venture capital. So there's definitely still activity. But if you look even at uh, the second half of 22 in Southeast Asia, we're looking at about kind of half the deal flow, but just about any cut you can look at it, deal count, kind of deal size, etc. That doesn't mean that this will this is here to stay. I think we're we're definitely looking more positively into 2024 and deal pipelines are healthy, fundraising and, and kind of dry powder on the sidelines is still at record levels. So we absolutely expect that to shift back into gear, but there's clearly a bit of a kind of moment in the market right now where, where deals are not happening and where we don't see as much activity. That doesn't mean it's at a standstill. So companies that do need to raise and they have good models still continue to raise even through this period. So in your perspective, how would startups deal with a challenging funding environment? I mean, in other words, I guess, will the high quality investments be able to secure funding in the Southeast Asia region? Yeah. Yeah, personally not concerned on that at all. For starters, many of them did raise kind of relatively late in 21 or kind of in the first half of 22, which was really record deal volumes in Southeast Asia at all stages of the cycle. And a lot of startups now with this shift to focus on profitability have actually extended their runway quite significantly. So it's very common now to have 18 to 24 months plus runway on the fundraising side, which means that in 2024, a number of them are not going to be up to to red to the markets. And we are seeing across the ecosystem a shift to profitable growth and actually quite successful models. The attractiveness of the market hasn't diminished. So everybody still believes in Southeast Asia and the potential and the various verticals that we're dealing with. So we would absolutely expect fundraising to come back and the particular successful startups to continue to raise successfully in Southeast Asia. Mm. Just to sort of help me to also think about the decline in funding, does the funding decline actually cut across different stages, like for example, seed series, a and then series B, C, or even series D, E plus onwards? Or is it differentiated by different countries? Maybe we just look at the top six economies, say Singapore, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Yeah, I think the funding decline unfortunately cuts quite broadly across the ecosystem. So if, if anything, I think the early stages are still a little bit protected, but even there we saw a significant drop in total funding value and also also deal count compared to even the second half of 22. Uh, there's a few pockets which are holding up on in particular markets. So Vietnam has held up surprisingly well. That remains a strong, strong pocket for, for fundraising. And then other kind of markets that are 
kind of, kind of next wave markets, I would say, so the Philippines as well, has held up the 2022 level, although that is at, at the relatively low level in, in their case. Most other pockets have been hit quite uniformly. Mm. So I, I guess with now startups struggling in some of the countries, does the investor face challenges in terms of returning capital to their LPs from their point of view? Well, that's, that's a consistent theme, which I think for the, for the first time in, in this year's report, for the economy report, PPI have become heavily in focus, have become heavy in focus. So the distribution to paid in capital for VC funds where Southeast Asia is still lagging. So even funds of the, of the 10 year kind of eight to 10 years where you would expect in more mature markets to have 70 to 80, 100% of your capital back uh, in Southeast Asia, only at about 40% uh, capital returned. Uh, and more recent funds, so the kind of five to seven year vintage is actually only at about 4% capital returns on average in Southeast Asia versus in markets like Europe and the US, it's already 20 40% capital back. And that obviously breaks a bit the virtual cycle of, of fundraising and growth and is really driven by, by the exit environment. So I think the exit environment unlocking is a key precursor for Southeast Asia to continue having a kind of healthy funding trajectory as we progress into the next three to four years. Mm. So what will your recommendations be like for Southeast Asia, say, digital business that need to survive through this funding winter? And it's really dependent on whether the Fed raises rates because it's, it seems to be the macroeconomic shift is actually whether startups are able to get more funding in the market. Yeah, it's really not, not significantly new news here. I think they, they all had that advice from their investors and from many other parties over the last kind of 18 months. It's focusing tightly on managing cash burn type of cost space where possible, focus on pockets of profitable growth, which many of them have, and ensure that you that you build successful businesses around that. It's also not as if fundraising is at a complete standstill. So it's important to still focus on the fundraising efforts, plan more time into the fundraising cycles, raise early. Uh, again, I suspect we'll see a lot of activity here in 2024 as successful businesses go to the next round. Even if global capital markets as, a, as an exit vehicle don't unlock as soon, as mentioned earlier, there's a lot of dry part on the sidelines and we see funds and also kind of growth equity investors willing to support businesses that have a positive story to tell. Mm. So actually, I have two more questions before we go into another theme of the report, which I thought was the most interesting. So do we see a lot more focus on monetization accelerating across the digital economy with now the investors want to see the companies going profitable? And then has the data also indicated where some startups with overpriced valuations will either collapse or be repriced similar to the US and other parts of the world? Yeah. So there's definitely, I think, again, you just need to read the, the newspaper or some of the other blogs or news reporting websites in this space to know that there's been a lot of focus on profitability. So and I think we support this from our both on the revenue side. You can see our kind of number on the Revenue to to GMB, which is really shifting, it was revenue outgrowing revenue by healthy by GMB by healthy margin, and actually also depending on sector, an increasing focus on alternate revenue sources. So outside of the build the customer base, which is a key part of GMB story, then we kind of actually charge commissions to the customer base or monetize the customer base, which is very prevalent in e-commerce, and then the what other services can we provide? So in e-commerce, this is things like advertising, logistics services any other service they can provide around the transaction, including kind of embedded financial services. And on the cost side of the story, where and how can we optimize the cost story to make sure that we really kind of focus on how we build into profitable growth and ensure there's a 
long-term sustainable sustainable business year. Based on the report this year, the financial services industry is at an inflection point, given the high interest rates as well as cash is pretty important now. What surprised us here is in particular that things like lending held up so well. Obviously, we're facing much tougher macroeconomic circumstances. Typically, that's a period uh, where banks tighten lending, where NPLs, non-performing loans go up, and we see kind of a bit of a bit of struggle in that space. But we have not seen this in the digital financial services space. So lending has kept going up. NPLs are still under control. Definitely more focus here, but for now, no real warning signs. The share of, kind of payments that is now digital is above fifty percent for the first time. Which again is easy to forget when you sit in a Singapore, KL, or Jakarta. Uh, but for the wider economy, that's kind of really new news. And on the back of this, we see companies of all shapes and forms actually doing very well in this ecosystem. So the pure play fintechs are going from strength to strength, be it in the kind of ENPL lending space or in the wealth management space. The kind of digital consumer tech players which are coming into this market with digital banks have been very successful, I think, establishing their presence, obviously market by market, some different challenges, but broadly, I think, kind of a great entry story. And then the established financial services players, which have not stood still and have continuously improved and upgraded their own offering in that space. So we think it's, I wouldn't say, wouldn't call it a golden age just yet, because there's obviously a lot of challenges in the kind of broader macro now landscape, but it's definitely kind of a very healthy growth trajectory for digital financial services. So I know you came from a financial services industry previously. Do you have any thoughts or so based on what is happening in the macroeconomic environment at specifically say that the digital natives give Google, where Google actually interacts so much more with, is there any, anything that's happening there in that space? Um, I think Florian covered, covered most of it. I mean, I, I would say the surprises are just how well lending is holding up, but I think the main thing is it's, there's this idea of going after unbanked segments or underserved segments. And I think this is a really good thing because it ties to that theme of the report that we have around digital inclusion and participation, right? So it could have been very easy to give up in this space and only mm -hmm. focus on high growth segments or really high value segments, but it's good to see kind of inclusion and participation. That's the lens we would have as Google, obviously with products like Google Pay that we have, mm -hmm. thing that uh, that we care about quite a bit. So I guess the lending and digital insurance, is it the only possible avenues of growth for these fintech companies then? I don't know if I would say that it's the only avenues for growth um, that come from, I think when you look at, there's a number of spaces like digital wealth, right? That presents a mm. lucrative opportunity for established financial services institutions to also attract and retain high net worth customers now through more means and more opportunities, automation, customer experience is everything, right? So you're going to see an opportunity outside of some of these, the players that probably are thinking about as you asked me that question. And so I really think that it's a real ecosystem shift across the entire spectrum, which I think is what's most exciting. Hmm. You read my mind because one interesting addition to the report this year is the concept of what is called a high value users. In most part of the report is titled HVUs. So given the need for businesses to pursue an accelerated path of profitability, first of all, I have my first question is, can you describe what constitutes a high value mm -hmm. user and how are they defined in the context of the report? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, we have really looked at this as different from market to market. So the definition 
of a high value user will look slightly different in a Singapore than a Philippines, right? So so what we've looked at is a minimum and maximum threshold. We can we can share a table mm. with you afterwards, but this is then mm. uh, accordingly adjusted across the various markets. But I think the main thing that we see is that we define high value users as the top 30 spenders in a digital economy based on their total spend across seven important verticals. Um, namely e-commerce, groceries, ride-hailing, food delivery, gaming, streaming, and travel. And these 30% of spenders in the digital economy, they account for 70% of economy spending in the region. So we kind of backed into that number of the monthly income to get there. And it's important to make a distinction that high-value users don't always equate to affluent, though, Mm. right? Because when you look at this 30% that are attract that are that make up the 70% of transaction value, only half of high value users come from what would be an affluent segment. 30% mm. of high value users can come out from outside of the um, cities and are in non-metro cities. And so this is important to note because typically when we think about who makes up high value, we think about affluent, mm. we think about in the, in the cities, but we introduced this to really show that while these users contribute to an outsized majority of digital economy GMV today, the total spending opportunity actually exists even outside of what you might typically note as affluent or high value or in the cities. And so we need to make sure that we are looking at the opportunity both for high value and non-high value, mm-hmm. though in the near term, what's happened is companies are looking at their profitability. And you can see that this is a good place for them to start is to look at high value users. And I think I, I'm quite curious, how did the concept of having this high value user come from? Because I, I'm very thankful that you actually helped me to to define it in a sense that it wasn't actually based on affluence. It's actually based on spending patterns. What was the motivation to introduce a metric like the high value user? That- well, you know, the motivation is um, the behaviors that we're seeing, right? It's, it's the inclination for businesses in a tough environment would naturally be to say, let's focus on our high value opportunities and they should be prioritizing. But in the but but actually as Google, obviously we care about universal access participation by all segments, right? We we use the word everyone a lot. And so it's important mm-hmm. that we make sure that we're being inclusive and we look at the risks that might be that might exist if we are too narrowly focused in the long term. And so we decided to look at this in detail. And like you said, you know, it's important to note that behaviors do not equal affluence, right? You can be mm. a really digitally engaged user, not necessarily have a lot of money, but you're contributing to the top um, of the transaction Pareto because this is where the spend is. And so it's it's that's how that's what drove us to to do this this year. Mm. What are the key trends for about high value users and what are their spending patterns as compared to say a non-high value user? Of course, a Singapore high value user is very different from a Indonesia high value user and a Philippines high value user because they represent very, very different types of economies. Yeah. 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 So high value users spend, they spend more than 6x the amount that non-high value users spend online today. And that's particularly on discretionary spending verticals, which would be things like gaming, transport, and travel. But they also spend across more verticals than non-high value users. And are actually, you'll see the breadth of these users in terms of their spending, even in adjacent spaces like e-commerce, grocery, 
it becomes, it's very much a pattern. So out of seven verticals that we looked at, high value users spend across six of them as compared to about four to four and a half from that of non-high value users. So you can see that even just they're, they're touching almost all the verticals um, and they have growing optimism as well. And so they are more likely to increase their spending over time. Their, you know, their, their trust is obviously higher. They have more experience. They don't see it any other way. Like this is how you do it, you know, is that you, you, you spend online. And so especially in travel and e-commerce in the next 12 months, they have a lot of optimism. That mm. said, I'll keep saying it because I think it's important. While high value users are more likely to increase their spending, non-high value users as a group present 1.9x growth opportunity of that of high value users. And so we need to look at the barriers that some of these users have and why they may not be engaging as much. Some of them are like touch and feel of products. That's not going to go away anytime soon, but this is where creative solutions on the internet are actually helping people to see things in different angles, different the 3D. You can mm. try things on without trying them on. And, and so this is going to be important that you also have pricing is obviously a consideration. And this is where you know, companies and businesses will need to look at pricing slightly different uh, because let's say in the space of gaming, non-high value users hesitate because they don't think they can compete in terms of keeping up with high value users from a gaming lens on how much they're willing to invest. And in a space where there's competition, that's important. So you have to open up avenues. And again, that comes back to why we wanted to call this out in the report. There's the option that we have to be creative to solve for these users this is new segments. These are new opportunities. We have to unlock them, right? And so it's a perfect challenge for businesses as we go forward. I, I thought I should just ask a follow-up question. So one thing that you, you have mentioned earlier in the report is about the 50% of digital payments. People have already moved into digital payments. Could it be like, say, in a high-value user, the, the reason why they exist is because now they have a smartphone, you know, they are able to trust the internet with the apps they have. It doesn't matter whether they're in Indonesia, Philippines, or Vietnam, right? They trust the, this specific set of apps across those verticals that you talk about. And that is basically the level of the opportunity. And at some point, the, the so-called non-high value users may also be turned online and come to market. Is that how we should exactly. see Exactly. I think so. I mean, that's what we're kind of seeing in the region. It's what's playing out right now, right? I think the strong underlying fundamentals of Southeast Asia have been this mobile access. We saw in previous reports much uh, advancement in terms of internet users coming online. So that we've we we reached that point. Now it is the experience that they're getting, right? They try, they trust, they build that experience, and we are seeing them come back, right? And so when you see that half of high value users are not affluent, right? That that means that they have tried. And they see value and they're coming back because this is a better way to do it. And yeah, so we're, I, I hope to see that, you know, this is where Southeast Asia is still a little bit more nascent than maybe other parts of the world. And we'll get to see this growth. And that's really what's going to fuel the future of the digital economy is seeing more movement from one group to the other. So if, if I may, just just one added thought here. I think the, the inverse is also true. And I always think we, we have uh, a little bit of a plug for a section of the report on, on digital inclusion. We have a whole group of users which are at risk of being left behind. And I think it's exactly those points you mentioned, Bernard, around 
access to a smart device. I mean, there's still people who don't have phone access to the internet, not universally available yet. Access to means of digital payment and, and kind of online transactions. That's not true in all parts of, of Southeast Asia. And the longer this is, this is prevalent and the, the more ingrained this becomes, the harder it's going to be to change it. Now, this is also where kind of the role of government obviously starts to play in. So businesses have a role to play here. Uh, but only to to a certain level. And that's something that we're also profiling the first time, which is important to keep tabs on. Mm. Yeah. I, and if I can build on that, I mean, one of the areas where we're seeing that you aren't seeing as much of the investment that ideally we'll need in the future is in the non-metros, right? And actually, because infrastructure is challenged, you see pullback because of challenging unit economics, right? But ultimately, there is value creation to be had there. And hopefully, you know, as time continues and and we continue to see investments being made in things like infrastructure and logistics, you'll see that improvement because we do see a gap between demand and supply in certain regions, particularly in the non-metros. Hmm. So I guess for when those infrastructures start going into maybe the third, fourth tier cities of all the different, the larger countries, say for example, the Philippines, the Indonesia, then you could actually see a lot more growth in terms of maybe bringing what I call the non-high value users online, because it's not about affluence, it's actually about the access. Exactly. And that's a, that present that 1.9x that you're talking about that the market opportunity actually can touch them from there. Exactly. So I'm curious now then, will the 2030 goal of the 1 trillion GMV within reach for the <laughs> Southeast Asia economy? I know we talked about it last year, Florian. <laughs> Samza, all yours. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we we believe it's an incredible milestone for Southeast Asia. And we do, you know, still see that as the range. We have not changed it. It's important not to lose sight on the profitable growth in the near term, right? I think we've seen in previous years, we've seen an acceleration versus some of our expectations because the digital economy has been so resilient and adaptable. And I think we'll we continue to be optimistic. But in the near time, it's really important. That's why this report really focuses on profitable growth. And so we believe it's the one trillion still within reach, but a few things need to happen. We need to see more digital consumers bridging the divide in economy participation, right? So we talked about that a lot. We need to see more digital businesses come online, right? We have a lot of nascent sectors still, and we want to see some of those nascent sectors cross the threshold. More geographic coverage, which I also mentioned beyond the metros. And I think, you know, Florian touched upon government and regulation, right? We need to see more interconnected regional activities. You know, it's really good to see the digital economy framework that's been created at an ASEAN level, right? Interoperability, having cross-border trade, you know, so we need to make sure that it becomes easier across the region and have digital agreements and better trade agreements to create more ease. But yeah, we want to make sure that the message we land is that really the key unlock is more profitable sectors are going to get the investment. They are going to see some more of the funding come through. Um, and so it's an important factor not to lose sight of, um, even in the long term. Yeah, and I would maybe add to this, I mean, if you think back seven to eight years, we were really nowhere. No, I mean, this was a bit of a backwater. We had sub-50% internet penetration. We had maybe like 100 million plus digital consumers who are mostly active on laptops and desktops. Smartphones are mostly considered as rich people. Now we're in a world where we can actually believe that seven to eight years from now, 
this could look very different again. And so we remain very long-term bullish on the market and the potential that Southeast Asia has. And we believe that it's true for most of the investors and digital tech companies we spoke with as well. So what would success look like for businesses in Southeast Asia for the next few years? I mean, given that we're now seeing a lot more geopolitical tension that's ongoing in other regions. Yeah, I um, you know, it, it, I get to work with businesses across the region um, every day. And, you know, I think there's three things that are needed. One, continued growth. We need to continue to see that that has to be a success measure. Participation, which we've talked about quite a bit. And then I would say improvements in ESG, thinking about environment, social and government, and, you know, because as investments are made, that's going to become more important. So, so just to tackle each of these a little briefly, you know, on growth, you know, digital businesses need to continue to reflect the dynamism that we've seen. And we need to show that profitability and growth don't have to be at odds, which this report actually has done. So we need to see businesses really embrace that and say that these two things are not at odds. We need to make sure we don't lose sight of participation and and that we don't get too narrowly focused on profitability at a user level. Um, because that could lead to a, wi- a widening of a gap if we don't pay attention to both high value and non-high value users. And then finally, you know, I think improvements in ESG are critical. We talked about this quite a bit in last year's report. And so, you know, digital businesses play a really big part in this and success will come if we can focus on environmentally sustainable growth and that we have a conducive regulatory environment which allows us to do this. And I think this is going to be important as investors make their choices in the future. These are some of the things that they're going to look at. This is one of the reports I anticipate every year and I'll probably be excited to do this again next year with you both. So I, my last question, because I can't ask my traditional closing question. So this is my traditional closing question just for this report. What do you most look forward to seeing in the 2024 report? Not, not as in the content, as in what are the trends or what are the things that you're most interested to see? For me, it's really all about exits and ability to exit. So number one for me would be kind of some of the big players on a very solid profitable trajectory with heavily recovering share prices. And that's not only for my own, the benefits of our own share portfolio, but because they're a key catalyst for the overall ecosystem. And linked to that, I think a few successful IPOs of next generation players at whichever stock exchange you will go for which really, I think, will will signal that there's a market here that is successful and that can be supported, and really also then re- will reignite the funding ecosystem in Southeast Asia. You can tell that Florian and I have different day jobs because my answer is a little different. So working at Google, it, you know, the thing I'm most excited about is when I get to see businesses applying new technologies in their support to their path to profitability. You know, obviously AI has the potential to really support automation, increasing productivity. But this comes with kind of an optimism to to try things out. And I hope this report provides that optimism. You know, you said, Bernard, at the beginning, you were surprised with some of these things. When we've done this report, we continue to be optimistic. So there are, you know, there's some areas of watch out and things have slowed down in the near term. But at the same time, we have to be optimistic to allow us to try new technologies, which help us get us to these moonshots for the future. 
we'll be very excited because I've been seeing a lot of startup activity on the AI spaces I've given myself is also being in the, the AI industry itself. So Sapna, Florian, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again, but I have two closing questions. So the first one is any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Well, um, I can just uh, connect it back to my last comment around new applications of technologies. I, I'm reading this book called AI 2041, um, which is by Kai-Fu Lee, uh, one of the mm. experts in this space. And he talk he he tells stories of the future and it's done in a science fiction-y way. So it's not your typical business book, but at, it, it shows kind of the potential and not to be fearful of what's coming, but then he connects it back to about um, some of the underlying technologies that will help us. So I think it's done enough. It's not your typical business or tech book because it feels like science fiction. So I definitely recommend it. Mm, definitely. I will also recommend the Google bot if for those who have tired of ChatGPT, actually test both at the same oh. time always. Okay. Yeah, Florian, what about you? So yeah, you you wanted this question. I actually had to, had to think about what really inspired me recently. And if you read the the news or any kind of reports these days, can, it's easy to get a little bit pessimistic on, on the world and, and where it's heading. I have to say, I have, I have three young kids. And the one thing I really recommend everyone reading is some of the essays and kind of little books that kids write, write in school. It's just inspiring kind of what, what, what they're coming up with. It always has a positive note. It's about overcoming obstacles, surprisingly environmentally conscious to, to one of Sapna's point earlier, and just a great uplift uh, after, after a day of reading the newspapers. Mm, totally agree. So last question, how do my audience find you both? Whoever starts first. <laughs> no, I'm on LinkedIn and quite often. So LinkedIn at Sapna Chada. I'm pretty easy to spot on LinkedIn as well, I think. So you can find me there as well. And I'll definitely put a link to the latest Google Southeast Asia economy report for 2023 so that all my audience can go and find out. And for us, you can subscribe us on YouTube. Okay, so I put all my bets on YouTube. And also, and also you can find us on our new, new, new site, analyze.asia, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. So Satna, Florian, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Great, thank you. Thanks, Bernard. Great. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks for having us.